Stand together and we'll pr and, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Hebrews together. We come to chapter 13. And if you're with us and you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then you can hear the Word of God and uh, see it with your own eyes as well. Never trust anyone like me without being able to see it with your own eyes in the book. And uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. God wants everyone to have his Bible and to read it and go deep in it. We look at two verses this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conduct or your manner of life be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself, that is the Lord, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as a result, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you that for all that is bound up in it. Thank you that this truth will outlive the heavens and the earth, Lord. And we want to live it now. And we thank you, Lord, for your word, all of the different things that your word addresses in our lives, the broad diversity of things as you desire to shape us into the image of Christ to form our life after his. And we thank you, Lord, for the subject matter that this passage addresses. And we surrender ourselves to you, even as we've sung, fresh and anew to your will, Lord, and ask that whatever you ask of us, whatever you instruct us in this passage, Lord, whatever you exhort us, Lord, we will be glad to obey it, knowing that only beauty and joy and peace and blessing is on that path and at the end of any path you call us to. Meet with us by your Holy Spirit. Speak to us in the privacy of our hearts today by your Spirit through your Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we noticed in the latter part of Hebrews chapter 12, that the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, and wonderfully so, that the world that we live in is made up of really two great kingdoms. There, is the, there are the kingdoms of man, the kingdoms that are all around us, that are built upon man's wisdoms and man's wisdom and man's ways, and increasingly built upon a rebellion against God the rebellion against God's word and his commandments and against his definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. And then there is the kingdom of God that is a kingdom that is unshakable, that is built upon the unshakable foundation of Christ. And the kingdoms of this world, the writer tells us, God is one day going to shake those kingdoms and bring them to an end so that what will ultimately be left standing and all that will be left standing will be the kingdom of God. As God takes and 
in the shaking of the kingdoms of this world, he exposes the instability of man's wisdom, the, uh, how faulty it is for building a human life on, much less to build an eternity upon. And ultimately, God is going to do that in a final judgment a little at the end of the great tribulation period. But even today, we have this deep, deep sense that there's something wrong with the world that we live in. There's, a fr there's something frightening about the instability of the kingdoms of this world today. And we realize that this instability that we're seeing is increasing, and it's increasing not because of a lack of money or a lack of this or a lack of that, but it's because the problems are increasing because man in his pride and his arrogance is moving further and further away from God and God's definitions, once again, of right and wrong and truth and good and bad. And you cannot sow to the wind without reaping the whirlwind. We are going to reap what we sow. And one of the things that's frightening to me on a purely human level is that in the continued arrogance of uh, men and women, and most especially, uh, most easily to be seen in our leaders in our own country and around the world is the, in the idea that man is so smart and man is able to govern this world without the help of God and even defy God's standards and will all be perfectly fine, is that these people don't realize that they are making decisions that are making the situation in this world even more fragile and that this thing can fall off a cliff overnight and be virtually unredeemable. But to them it's just a big game and it's, again, it's just the pride and the arrogance of man. And what God wants, it, it, and there's hardly anything good that has come out of, you know, the last five or four or five years with a great economic decline as it relates to the whole world that we live in and, and all. And so everybody's hoping for a better economy and what can the Fed do and what can these do and the same, the same stories being played in Europe and the same stories being played in China and the same stories being played in Russia and in South, South America and Central America and Africa and everywhere. It's the same focus without the waking up to the fact that we are where we are economically and in every way, not because of, solely because of uh, poor financial policies, but because of a violation of God's Word that led to greed and led to dishonesty and led to not loving our neighbor as ourself and led to the place that we're in uh, today. And if there's anything good that has come out of the last few years, it, it to me is, uh, and there's not much good to come out of the last few years in terms of the world. I've, the world that I live in on a physical level, everybody's walking around in like this protracted depression because there's so much uncertainty, there's so much worry, there's such a lack of confidence that anyone has the vision or the righteousness to move us out of this place. But there is an upside to all of it, and the upside is 
that may be like never before, certainly in my lifetime, but in my lifetime, which means my generation and below, never has this world been exposed for the unstable, fragile thing that it is like today. And never is there a sense for a thinking person and an honest person to realize that people are no smarter, no dumber than me, no better, no worse than me intrinsically, and, they, and we need a God that we are submitted to, and we need a wisdom that is greater than ours in life. And my hope is, is that churches all around the world will be filled with a great revival as people would come to realize that there is no hope in man, there is no stability found in man or in his wisdom. It is all found in God. And so one of the things that happens, you've got these two kingdoms. You've got the kingdoms of this world governed and and the, the great monuments to man's pride and his wisdom, and then you've got the kingdom of God, what is built upon Christ and built upon the things of God. And the one kingdom, God says, is a shakable kingdom that he will ultimately shake to the ground, and the kingdom of God is an unshakable kingdom, and that's the kingdom that we're a part of. And something happens to us once we become a Christian, and it isn't just, I'm a part of an unshakable kingdom because I'm a Christian, and so everybody in the whole wide world, too bad for you. But that's, that isn't, as we have mentioned last week, that isn't a mark of maturity or any kind of a mark of the heart of God in us as Christians. We realize that because we are a part of the kingdom of God, there is this stability, there is this wisdom that we don't have to second doubt, we, we don't uh, second guess or doubt. There is this foundation that isn't going to move on us. There is a king behind this kingdom who is always faithful, whatever the circumstances of the world. And our longing as we partake of those benefits is not that we would keep them to ourselves, but that the whole world might see the different thing that we're a part of and then become a part of that kingdom as well. I'm a debtor in this regard. I remember being... In earlier in my life, before I committed my life to walking with the Lord, there were people that I could see, kingdom people, kingdom of God people, that I could look at their lives and I saw in them a stability and a joy and a hope and a meaning and a purpose that I did not possess. And it made me realize I am a part of one thing and they are a part of something altogether different. And God has a way of making much of this difference and bringing individuals who are honest on an honest search for the truth and meaning and purpose in life to look and say, I am in something infinitely inferior here. What my life is in terms of sin, bondage to sin, and absence of joy, and absence of meaning and purpose as opposed to what I see over here in this man's life, this woman's life, their lives. I hope you had people like that in your life before you became a Christian. And it's people like that that play an important part in addition to preaching the gospel to us to bring us into the kingdom. And so we want, as Christians, we want our, we want our lives to be different in this world, not only for our own good, though we don't minimize that, but we want our lives to be different 
in, in a powerful way so that the world can realize there is an alternative to the kingdoms of man. There is a refuge. There is another option. And in order for that people to take notice of the kingdom of God, there has to be a distinct difference between the two kingdoms. And that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about here in chapter 13. There has to be this kingdom over here that looks like one thing and then the kingdom of God looking like something entirely different or people wouldn't notice that there's a difference at all. There would be no longing to leave the one to go to the other. And God doesn't leave it to us to come up with our own list of how we can make ourselves different so people will take notice of the fact that we're in the kingdom of God and our kingdom is diff- our king is different than their king because we would come up with all kinds of super superficial, goofy things that wouldn't really be meaningful. They wouldn't really capture the heart of a person to say, now that's different. That's a life that isn't different in some supernatural way. That's a life that's different at its core, at its foundation. I want to know more about that. And so in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, the writer speaks to us about how we can best represent the kingdom of God in that kind of a way in the mess that the world is that we are in. And he told us that a deep and meaningful difference and contrast between the two will be found, number one, in verse one, he told us, as Christians, if we love one another as family, as brothers, because that's exactly what we are. He said the second meaningful difference will be when we show hospitality to one another. We look out for one another as Christians, and we take care of each other. And then third, in verse 3, we're told to be loyal to one another, that we determine that no Christian ever gets forgotten no matter where they are in the world, no matter what prison they're in, and certainly no Christian ever gets left behind or forgotten when they are paying the ultimate price for simply being faithful to the Lord. And then uh, fourth, as we saw last week, that our lives as Christians are to be marked by sexual purity. Now, you take those four things, and if those four things alone were to characterize every single Christian in the world, think about the stark difference that there would be between those who make up the, the kingdoms of mere men and the kingdom of God. It would be a powerful difference between the two and the quality of life and the beauty of, of life. And then notice the Holy Spirit adds another area of life where he wants the world to see a very stark difference between our lives as Christians and those who make up the kingdoms of the world. And it has to do with the areas of uh, contentment and the areas, uh, area of covetousness. And I want us to notice three great truths from this passage this morning. Number one, the Holy Spirit's uh, call to us to contentment and then to notice the great enemy of contentment, which is covetousness, and then number three, the key to contentment. He tells us, in starting with the call to contentment, that as Christians we are to be content with such things as we have. So he begins by telling us that we are to be uh, content 
we are to be a contented people as citizens of the kingdom of God. Someone has called contentment a rare jewel in the human condition, and it really is. First, it's a jewel because of its value. The person who possesses contentment really does possess something that is priceless. To possess contentment is to possess something that not even all of the money in the world can produce. Second, it is a rare jewel because of its rarity. How many truly contented people do you know? I hope you know some. But how many truly contented people do you know? Not as, not as many as we would like. And then third, it is a rare jewel because of its beauty. Contentedness makes any person's life more beautiful and attractive for possessing it. So what is contentment? It means to be satisfied. That's a wonderful word, isn't it? To be satisfied. Sometimes I think for us in this country, because of the culture we're in, it's just a word. And we give up the idea that it can represent a reality in a person's life. But to be contented is to be satisfied. I remember one time I was eating in a restaurant with my wife and the waitress came up and asked if there was anything else that she could get us and I said, no, I'm satisfied. And it startled her. She stopped and she said, that's a wonderful word. She said, it is. <laughs> But it's a wonderful word not just about a meal. It's a wonderful word about life. And to be contented is to be satisfied. Well, that raises the question, uh, and the question is this. What are we to be satisfied with? Or what is to be, bring contentment to our life? And the answer is given in our verse, with such things as you have. I want you to understand, very, very important, that the Holy Spirit is not making an argument that no Christian should ever attempt to rise above their current economic situation, that they should never, ever take a promotion, never advance in the company, never better themselves to move ahead in the company or move ahead in, in life or in an e economy, that we should never have a savings account or get a degree or even an advanced degree uh, in order to further my education and further qualify myself for where I believe God is taking me in life. He's not talking about those kind of things. All of those things are wonderful under the Holy Spirit's direction in a Christian's life. He's referring to the attitude of our hearts and our minds. And he's saying that the Christian is not to join the rest of the world in being dominated by greed and covetousness and the love of money. But rather, we are to realize that satisfaction and contentment and true meaning and purpose in life are found in three things. Number one in a personal, obedient relationship with the Lord. And then number two, in fulfilling God's calling and His purpose for our individual life. And then, number, and then third, 
than being content with whatever material possessions that God chooses to add to our lives in order to accomplish the first two things. That is, is where contentment and meaning and purpose in life is found. The Apostle Paul put it this way, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. He said, now godliness with contentment is great gain. And again, what he is saying is the truly rich person is not the one who is merely famous and rich, but it is the person who knows God, who obeys God, who lives to fulfill God's purpose for his life, and then is content with whatever God chooses to add to their lives materially in order for that to be accomplished. I think the Holy Spirit strikes this beautiful balance in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. It declares, Give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? That's a real danger. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane or discredit the name of my God. To be content is to be content with daily bread, just as Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. It is to be content with God's supply of our needs, not, as someone has noticed, our greeds. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul writes, And my God shall supply all of your greed. No. That's a different Bible. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And the person who is truly rich in this world is not the person who has the most, but the person who is content with the least. I'm going to repeat that because it's important. The person who is truly rich in this world is not the person who has the most, but who is content with the least. You say, that's just the kind of one of those sayings that people like you say in church. No, 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 it isn't. It's the truth. Because that's, that is true freedom and that is true wealth, the wealth of contentment. We're so unfamiliar with contentment that we don't even know how to esteem it or to value it in contrast material things in the materialistic culture that we live in so often. And we need, we really need exhortations like this one to live contented lives or else we will, even as Christians, unknowingly fall into the trap that most people fall into in a covetous materialistic society like the one that we live in, and here's what they fall prey to, and we are prone to fall prey to, is that we will ultimately find ourselves accumulating just enough material things that it takes all of our time, all of our effort, and all of our resources to take care of our things until there is nothing left for God in terms of time with him, 
nothing left for his calling and his purposes for my life and his plan for my life. Years ago in the kingdom of Siam, we know that kingdom is modern-day Thailand. If the king of Siam liked a person, he would give that person a rare white elephant as a blessing, as a sign of favor and, and friendship. But if the king hated someone, he would give them two or three white elephants. Because no gift from the king could ever be sold or given away. So now you had to feed those elephants and you had to groom those elephants and care for them for the rest of their lives. And they live a long time. And in the case of two or three elephants, the king knew that it would take all of his enemies' time and money to maintain and care for them. And if we are not careful, we can find ourselves in the same place, under the, uh, in, in, wrought by our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, in the same place of all of our time and money going into what is useless rather than what life is all about. Just think about what would happen to each of us if Christian, as Christians if having the basic needs of our life being met, which God promises to do. And what is that? Food, clothing, and shelter. Those are the needs in our life. What if we were in a situation or we lived in a world, we don't live in this world, but what if we did live in a world where once we received the needs of our life being met, food, clothing, and shelter, there was nothing else to strive for beyond that, upwardly, in terms of the material realm. There was no bigger, there was no better, there was no fancier, there was no greater, there was no latest and greatest. There was nothing to take and, and uh, th that we could hope for or strive for. Think about what that would do in a human being's life. Think about how much time we would gain in life. All the effort that goes on, and you can search your own life related to this, but how much in, in, in our lives individually of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength is giving, given to contemplating the bigger, the better, the next, the greater. How much mental effort goes into that on a daily basis? How much emotion is spent on that? How much physical time and effort is is given toward that? How much is so often even spiritually a person sacrifices in order and lays by the side in a negative sense in order to, to gain these things? And we think about if all of that temptation to invest our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength in more and bigger and better materially were taken away from us as an option, we would look at ourselves and say, what am I going to do with all of this extra time now? And really, that would be the case. And then there would be time like we never realized we could even possibly have for growing in depth in our personal relationship with God. We wouldn't race through our devotionals. We wouldn't skim those chapters. 
There'd be plenty of time for that. The time that would be left in order to serve individual local churches and the needs of people within those churches and to fulfill gifting and calling. The time that would be left over to take the gospel anywhere and everywhere God wanted to all around the world, much less to free up resources to go in that direction, away from the whole commercial Babylon that we're in the middle of. Sometimes we don't realize how much of our life we are investing in this thing called covetousness and this bigger and better and more and more, unless we just stop and think, what if that were taken away as an option? But we're never going to live in a world where that's going to be taken away from us as an option. So you say, what do we do? We have to self-impose on the power of the Holy Spirit and to say, I want off the merry-go-round. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life to be, to be investing in all of those things. I realize they are not where meaning and purpose and value and, is found and I'm going to self-impose to be content with what I have and then let that time that is automatically going to free up for me as well as emotional and mental and physical resources now to redirect toward God and toward His plan for my life. I'll tell you, it would revolutionize. I don't say it to condemn. I just say it for consideration for our own individual lives between us and the Holy Spirit. No one will ever make that decision for us, not in this culture. We don't want them to. I wouldn't want a government that would do it. I wouldn't want to belong to a church where somebody said they were, they were, thought they were smart enough to impose something on individual lives in that way. It's not safe in those hands. But it is safe between an individual and their God to come and say, Lord, I want to be content with such things as I have and then watch the life that unfolds as a result of that. The enemy of contentment, verse 5, of course, is covetousness. One time Jesus in his public ministry, he was, out, he was teaching out in the open and we're told in the passage that a great multitude was gathered around him. Man, if I could have a, a CD of that teaching. I can't wait to hear his voice. I can't wait to hear his voice. And he's teaching about the kingdom of God and the things of God and salvation and all of these magnificently weighty things. And a man interrupts him. Man interrupts the teaching of Jesus. Talk about a dollar waiting on a dime. We say, surely he's going to interrupt Jesus over some gigantic theological question that Jesus' teaching has raised in his mind, but that Jesus hasn't come to the point in his sermon of explaining to him. No, that's not what was on this man's mind. Jesus is unfolding all of this, and the only thing that this guy can think about is that his brother isn't properly dividing the inheritance with him. And so he interrupts Jesus, and he said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Greed, money. And Jesus said to the man, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Wow. You ever went from feeling this big to being feeling this big in an instant? And then Jesus turned, and he's going to make a life lesson out of what this 
great audience has just witnessed. And he turns to the crowd and he said to them, take heed and beware. When's the last time somebody used the word beware in your life? That's a strong, strong word. It's almost a lost word now. We're so afraid to tell someone to beware of something because, after all, everything is equal and it's all fine and, you know, we want to be politically correct. But Jesus said to the crowd, he said, take heed and beware. And when Jesus uses the word beware, he's got my attention. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. What? Wow. How foreign is that in the world in which we live? And what is covetousness that Jesus warns us against? Covetousness is the opposite of contentedness. And the Greek word literally means to have more. To covet means to always want more. It doesn't matter how much a person have, has covetousness, always wants more. And thus the sin of covetousness is the ungodly desire for more. The life-dominating desire for more. That is, when the master passion of my life is the desire for more possessions, for more material things, and it can be money or can be the things that money can buy. And it is to be uh, marked by that quest for more as opposed to contentedness. And so in terms of my position in life, and your position in life, again, in the privacy of our hearts, is, our, is our, our, our lives given supremely to the next thing, the next material thing, to wealth, position, and the wealth that comes with that? Or in terms, or do we value wealth and riches and the passion, master passion of our life in terms of the richness of our personal relationship with God and, be, and the richness that it is to be faithful to his call upon our lives and the advancement of the kingdom of God through our lives. Jesus defines covetousness as the life that results when a person uh, thinks that life consists in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And Jesus declares that to be a lie. He says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. In other words, he says, be on the highest guard against greed and covetousness because no one will find meaning or purpose or satisfaction or peace in the accumulation of material things. To live for the accumulation of material things is to miss completely the purpose of life. And that's the truth. It's important for us as Christians to realize that covetousness is sin. 
And we tend not to think of it as much as sin because it's a socially accepted sin in our culture because our culture is given to materialism and it is given uh, to uh, uh, to, uh, covetousness. And so it's not only accepted in our culture as a normal thing, but it's nurtured in our culture. And indeed, I would say it is probably the dominant voice in our culture. It's virtually a religion. I remember when President Bush, I don't say this one statement characterized him in his presidency, but it shocked me when I heard him say it. And he's talking about the greatness of the United States of America in a speech. And he encapsulated the greatness of, of, of America as being the place in the world to come and economically prosper. I said, we're cooked. If that is the great light that shines out from this nation or any nation to the rest of the world, that that's what we stand for, that this is the place where you can come and buy the most toys before you die, that, that's what we have lowered ourselves from, from where this country was founded. Are you kidding me? And that came out of the mouth of a president? And it just speaks to the strength of how this is nurtured and accepted in our culture. And I would say not only the dominant voice of our culture, but virtually a religion. The idea that life and meaning and satisfaction and contentment can be found in the accumulation of material things. The exact opposite of what Jesus declared. And contentment is so rare because everything within our culture actively fights against it. Much of our national economy is built upon covetousness. Much of our economy depends upon a culture of covetousness in order to exist and to survive. And it is nurtured in our society in virtually every advertisement that we see. I'm no expert in advertising, Some of you might be. Um, I've often thought about maybe getting a book on it and reading it someday if I wanted to waste my time. But, uh, But it fascinates me in a certain way because the older I get and the more I get these little glimpses into this big machine that we're in the middle of, and you'll hear somebody maybe give a speech or they'll talk about something in, in that realm or you read an article on it and you realize these people who sell things to us and are determined to do that, they know you like you don't know you. They know what music to play in the store that will impact your emotions and your mind and you don't even know it's happening to you. They know what fragrance. 
They know what things to group. I mean, when you're talking about people who really know what they're doing, there is no accident to anything about how something is displayed, how it is portrayed, much less in a store and all, much less the advertisement, what appeals to us. They probably know human beings better than almost anybody knows human beings for the purpose of selling something to us and to manipulate us away from contentedness toward the desire for this thing. And that's what advertising has to do. And not all of it is bad. Some of it's informative and it's important. But an awful lot of it, the advertising has to do two things. Number one, it has to produce a discontent in my heart with what I have. And then number two, it has to communicate to me that my life is not full, it isn't complete, I will never be satisfied until I buy this newer, bigger, better, or some different product that's being offered to me. But behind all of it is to make me discontented with what I currently have. And that's the machine. And whether it's toothpaste or television or cars or you name it, that's what's going on all around us all of the time. This literally constant barrage of messages telling us that we are only their product or their service away from happiness, contentment, and satisfaction in life. And it's very, very effective. Just witness the crushing debt that people are willing to incur under the influence of covetousness, no longer content with just the necessities of life. And some people put themselves, fall prey to covetousness and put themselves in this crushing debt and other consequences of it because they're just suckers for the machine. And that's, that's one thing. We're all suckers for the machine unless somebody makes us aware of it. But until we become a Christian, I'll say this, before we become a Christian, there really is a hole in our life. There really is a cross-shaped hole in our life. We realize, we realize there's something more to life, there's something more to life, there's something more to life than than what I have experienced or what I have. And when you live in a materialistic society, the thing that's brought before you all the time is it's got to be this material thing. And so people sometimes, in just the search for the meaning of life, are convinced that just one more of this or one bigger of this, and then finally this great quest will be ended. And one of the great things that happens to us is when we become Christians is that God comes into our life, fills that hole, and now we are immune to the whole system in a way that we never were before. But the person that doesn't know the Lord, the system is just built to prey upon them. Contentment can never be found in money but only in God. And sometimes it's just good for us as Christians to stop and to realize what we have. 
All we hear about is what we don't have, what we don't have, what we don't have, what we should have, what we need to have, what we have. It's going to be, what are you going to do? You're going to look out of touch with the culture. You're going to look out of touch with, you know, one generation to another. And this whole thing just goes on and on and on and on and on. And then sometimes it's just good to stop and say, all right, I'm going to click all of that off and I'm just going to look at what I do have and to see whether what I do have is enough to be content with. And then sometimes the light goes on. Wow. I never even noticed my blessings because of the machine that I'm in the middle of. There's a story of a farmer. He had a great farm, been handed down to him by his parents. And he'd lived all of his life on that farm and everything. And one day he just kind of got tired of it, wanted to do something else, you know. All he could see was what was wrong with the farm. So he called a real estate agent to come out, take a look at things, establish a price and all. Real estate agent came out and she did exactly what real estate agents do. They took a look at the property, the pictures, and wrote up this description of the property and all. And the farmer read the description of his property, called up the realtor, said, take it off the market. I've been looking for a place like this all my life. <laughs> and sometimes it's like that. We don't even realize what we have until we stop and, and look what's there. And this, content, this, this covetousness, it's not just the machine, it's not just the advertising, it's not just the, the, the world around us, but it's in us. And we have to be aware of that. And it takes God's Word and it takes God's Holy Spirit to change that in our life. There's a story of Lord uh, Congleton who, who was in... in England and he was in his great estate and he was walking by the kitchen. The doors were closed at the time where the servants were preparing the meal and he heard one of his servants say, uh, speak in there, oh, if I only had five pounds, I would be perfectly content. And he opened up the door and he went into the room and he handed her five pounds. There was a lot of money in those days. And then he turned around and he walked out of the room, closed the door, but he stood outside the door to see what the reaction was. And the reaction was exactly as he expected. She said, I wish I had asked for 10. <laughs> it's in us. It's in us. And the key to contentment, and we close with this, is found in verse 5, the latter half where the writer says, for he himself, that is God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And because of that, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And here the writer gets to the root of much of the covetousness that is in the lives of Christians. And that is the attempt to find security in wealth rather than in God and in His promises. The whole issue is security. It's not about bigger, it's not about better, it's not about more. Here's a Christian that's moved away from that already in their life, but the Christian keeps working and working and working and striving and striving and striving and accumulating and accumulating and accumulating until there's no time for a devotional life with God and what time there is, it's hurried through. There's no time for God's call upon their life. 
to even consider it, let alone to fulfill it. And this whole thing hits the Christian and the striving and the working and the accumulating. Again, as I said, not for some new appliance or luxury, but in order to save enough money that I think will provide me with security in life. A nest egg, we call it. Retirement or old age or just a bank account that I feel like if I have this certain amount, then I can rest day in and day out. The problem with that kind of a security and that kind of a nest egg is you never know whether it's enough. So does your nest egg need to be $100, $500, $1,000? Does it need to be $50,000? Does it need to be $500,000? Does it need to be a million? Does it need to be $10 million? Does it need to be $100 million? And the reason that there's all of this kind of anguish and turmoil that goes on around the attempt to find security in money rather than in the promises of God and the life of the child of God is because security and peace can never be found in material wealth, but we don't believe it. We believe it up here, but we don't believe it practically. And the reason that material wealth can never bring security and peace is because the source of my security and peace must be greater than all of the things in life that can rob me of my security and my peace. And only God is big enough to provide peace and security in this world because only He is greater than all that we will ever face in life. Only He is. And this is searching for us as Christians. And it's important that it does that. Where we look in the, again in the privacy of our heart and say, Lord, if the truth be made known to people, the truth that's so readily apparent to you, in terms of my old age or my retirement or my future, my greatest hopes are found in what I have been able to save and invest and not in you. That I experience the greatest peace when I get that statement monthly or quarterly from the brokerage firm or from the bank or the investment firm and I see what those numbers are. A peace that if the truth be made known, I never feel when I read your promises. And that great temptation in our hearts, even as Christians, even as we love God and we know God and we want to glorify God for something other than Him to become our security in life. And what currency does God deal in in order to provide us with peace and security in life? Is it in euros? Is it dollars? Is it British pounds? Is it real estate or stocks and bonds or gold? Is that the most valuable thing that God possesses to impart to his children in order to produce peace in our hearts and security into our life? No. The currency that he issues to us is his word. 
his promises. And that's what he gives here in this passage, two wonderful promises from the Old Testament. You ever known a man or a woman who when they give their word, that's it. They will die rather than fail to keep that promise. That's the integrity of their life, what their name and their reputation means to them. And here you come in some kind of a situation and coming together in some kind of an agreement and you make an agreement with that kind of person. You shake hands on that deal and you walk away. And the peace that that uh, handshake produces is that idea as we would tell ourselves as we walk away, my situation is in great hands. And there's a peace about that. But God's word is infinitely more sure. God cannot lie, the Bible says. The Bible does not say that he will not lie. It says he cannot lie. Do you realize he cannot fail to keep every one of the thousands and thousands of promises in his word to you individually and not be a liar? He is incapable of not keeping his promises to you and to me. It's not that he will not do it. He can not do it. That's how sure this currency of his word and his promises are toward us. And what promises does the writer remind us of? The promise of God's presence, that he will never leave us or forsake us. That's the guarantee of security. Jesus was sufficient for every situation he found himself in life, more than sufficient, and he is present in our life. And then there is the promise in verse 6 of his help that he will always be our help in any circumstance we find ourselves in and the nuttiness and the craziness and the instability of the world that we live in. Life is unfolding for us a little bit at a time. And so it surprises us a minute at a time. But it never surprises God. Never. He gave his promises knowing all of us would be in the middle of everything we find ourselves in the middle of today. And there's a great safety net, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, under each and every one of us as children of God, the safety net of his word. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one or he'll love the other or else you'd be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? I mean, do you see how searching these questions are? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For these are after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's the safety net that is under each and every one of us all the days of our life the currency, the very word and promise of our Savior. The truly rich person in life is not the person who has the most material wealth. The truly rich person is the person who, number one, has a personal, obedient relationship with God, and number two, who is being faithful to God's calling and purposes for their life, and then number three is content with whatever material possessions God chooses to add to our lives in order to accomplish those two single great things. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. And everyone will discover this to be true. It's just a matter of when, not a matter of if. Where true riches are found, they are found in the things having to do with the Lord and then trusting the Lord to take care of our needs as we seek first the kingdom of God. Some people will learn the truth of that on their deathbed, saved all their life, but having wasted their life being trampled out by all of these other things. But everyone will learn it. And the key is in the heart of the writer of the book of Hebrews is that we would learn it today and not invest another hour or a day or a week in anything else, but to realize that this is the place where contentment and fulfillment and meaning is found. And somebody has to tell us that truth, and God does in his word, in order that we would make whatever changes we need to make today to enter into the life that's described in these two verses, rather than coming to the end of our life and looking back with great regret and saying, I wish I had taken seriously what I suspected of being true all along. If you sit here today and you are not yet a Christian, the lesson for you today is don't miss heaven over this materialistic machine that's all around us. Don't miss heaven over stuff. And that means a lot to me, that, that lesson. Karen was born and raised in Napa, California. That was when Napa was just Napa. 
<laughs> now it's something else. Wonderfully so, I'm not putting it down. And I was raised in Napa, beautiful place. Lots of people go to Napa for lots of great reasons, and there's a lot. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. But for us, is our hometown. I explored all of those hills on my bike and on my feet, and that's why it meant something to me. And we got married. We bought a house, fixed it up, sold it at a profit, bought another house, fixed it up. Beautiful, beautiful home in that place. Two cars, both of them paid for, one child and another on the way. Everything that was supposed to be the machine told us we would be satisfied with. And I remember working in the backyard, putting up a new fence in the backyard of the second house and all. And as I was putting that up, it dawned on me that if I am not satisfied now with what I have, I will never be satisfied with spending the rest of my life simply upgrading from where I am. And I remember going into the house and talking with Karen and saying, I'm going back to church. I was raised my junior high and senior high years in church. I knew where to turn. But I had more than anyone had had in my family up to that point. And I thought, no, this is a merry-go-round. I've got to get off of this because if this doesn't satisfy, nothing will. And that's the truth because you do have a cross-shaped hole in your heart that's made for God and a relationship with God and His plans for your life. And all that awaits you is there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who would love to pray with you to make Jesus your Savior today. Have Him come into your life and now lead you into the most amazing life that a person can live. And that's to speak only of this life, nothing of the life to come even, the beauty and the majesty of that. And it's all waiting for you. Only God knows what He's talking about in this world. Man does not know, you do not know, and you would not be in a room like this if you weren't having suspicions about your ability to know. You come home to God, and that's where the peace and the contentment and the fullness and the joy is found. Do it today. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you how you're interested in little, every little area of our life. And these things that we think are small are much bigger than we realize. And again, we thank you in the same way that we began for your commitment to conform us into the image of the greatest life that was ever lived. And that is the life of our Savior, the life of Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to do that work in our lives. And we pray that the beautiful and the necessary thing that these two verses bring to all of that would do their full and needed work in each one of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.